Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today with me on Everyday Theology, I have a real pleasure to have as a guest, Frank Schaefer. Thank you so much, Frank, for being with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Frank is the son of someone who a lot of people know. His name is Francis Schaefer, but Frank himself is an author, a speaker, a theologian, and he's written quite a few books. A few of them here I want to highlight. One of them is called Crazy for God, How I Grew Up as One of the Elect, Help Found the Religious Right, and Live to Take All or Almost All of It Back, as well as Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. So Frank, it's such an honor to have you on my podcast. Listen, Aaron, thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind letting my audience know, now that we've got these provocative book titles here for them to chew on, a little bit about yourself before we get rolling into our conversation today. Sure. Well, let's, let's start with the son of Francis Schaeffer part. Um, you, you know, usually when I hear someone as the son of or, uh, you know, they come from a, a well-known family, I'm picturing some young guy whose father is doing all sorts of things. But... Uh, my dad passed away in 1984, and I'm 68 sitting here talking to you. Um, and so my own life as an adult, just to give it a shape here to your listeners, doesn't consist of much theology or anything else these days besides taking care of three of my five grandchildren. I know mm. people are expecting big answers and all kinds of discourse from the son of a famous theologian or philosopher, but let's just start with the basics here. I was a little late in picking your call up today because I was walking one of my grandchildren, my little six-year-old granddaughter home, having just fed her lunch. Uh, I made her pasta alfredo with a little salmon to go with it. (laughs) We've been on the swing set for the last two hours. Before that, my 12-year-old granddaughter, who does school right now uh, online part of the time and part in person, was in my my office studio painting where I set her up with an easel. So first of all, let's start with what I brought away from the experience of growing up as Francis and Edith Schaefer's son and have carried forward with my own three grown children and five grandchildren. And that is really, I care far less about any issue you could mention today, political or theological, than I do about the fact that by God's grace, I just celebrated my 50th wedding anniversary this year in June. That's amazing. Uh, Having gotten gotten Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18, seems like more than 50 years ago now, uh, in another lifetime, have stayed together and um, have these beautiful grandchildren who live in my neighborhood that I care for every day. So essentially, I'm not really a theologian or an author so much as a kind of a glorified nanny. And and that's who I really am, because, you know, there's no point in, in trying to present yourself as something different. Now, in in other parts of my life, I have written, I have had a spiritual journey away from the rather fundamentalist, basic evangelical Calvinist background I come from. I still find myself uh, as someone who goes to church. I happen to go to a Greek Orthodox church and have for the last 30 years. Uh, I'm someone who, when it comes to intellectual beliefs and science, uh, I'm someone who listens to science and certainly believes that science explains far more than biblical myth does in one hand. But on the other hand, every morning I get up and pray in exactly the way my mother taught me, going through the list of family members and others and committing that day to God. So my own life is paradoxical. My journey has not been one of of cut and dried rebellion, slamming doors, walking away from faith. It's been more of a progression of events, which in my own experience always comes back to the very basic question 
of family life and the close human connections. So where I differ with the secular culture around me is my definition of success is not career success. It's family success. It's connection on a personal level. Where I differ from the evangelicals is that I do not believe that the Bible is literally true in the sense that I was raised to believe it almost as an alternative to anything you would learn in school or science or college or high school. You know, my father was an apologist who tried to put these two things together. um, And I've moved to a different position. So that's a kind of a thumbnail off the wall sketch. If people want to read about my journey out of the evangelical right wing movement, as you mentioned, my memoir, Crazy for God, is a good place to find those that story. Uh, and then, of course, I've written a lot of novels and other books as a, a writing literary nonfiction, which draw on that background of being a pastor's son, which I guess you are, too. Right, Aaron? You're yeah. a pastor's son. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you read some of my novels, like like uh, Portofino, for instance, told from the point of view of an 11 year old growing up to missionary parents in Europe, you would identify because most preachers, kids, most missionaries, kids have had similar experiences. And I obviously draw on that. But in terms of where I'm at theologically, it has, as I said, but bears repeating, it has a lot less to do with any theological ideas, that word is generally understood, and a lot more to do with the general sense of gratitude that 50 years into my marriage, my wife and I are close, we love each other, we love our children and grandchildren, and in spite of many failures, falling down, getting back up, uh, all kinds of passionate arguments and the rest of it, we're still together. So in, in that sense, I see my prayers mother, my, my prayers answered, my parents' prayers answered for their family. That's the kind of theology I'm much more interested in than yeah. anything more didactic or rationalistic. Yeah. And experiential, right? And as a Pentecostal, I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, um, but that kind of gives us a good framework for moving into our topic today, which is, you know, to, to start just to say it is a very hot topic. And it's one that very often when people first hear that this is what we're going to talk about, they've already made their decision and they are going to kind of close themselves off. But our topic today is actually about how Christians have perceived abortion. And by that, I mean, you have a very storied history with this discussion, but also not necessarily how should Christians engage with it, but the fact that this idea of Christians and how we've talked about it, both politically and even in our own Christian circles, has really morphed over the years. And we've almost forgotten the history of how the church has thought about this issue. And that's why I'm very thankful for to have you with me today, Frank, because I think in all the people that I've read or thought about this uh, issue you seem to have some of the best memory about how the church has handled this because you were right there with it the entire time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that my father is known for, which is partially due to my work, is that back in the 1970s with Dr. C. Everett Koop, who then went on and became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, we made a film series <coughs> excuse me, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race that in its episodes, essentially, along with its companion book and study guide and the seminars we did and the rest – is credited by most American historians at this point with being the foundation of what became known as the evangelical wing of the pro-life movement. Uh, Before that, Roe v. Wade came along and evangelicals had not really reacted. And now because we were out with that series and I had produced it and written the screenplay based on C. Everett Koop and my dad's book, Uh, And because we were involved in this three-year project, including the making of the series and then the launching of it and, you know, getting picketed by the National Organization of Women and Planned Parenthood and all the rest, I was kind of there at the beginning of this having become an issue for evangelical Christians. Now, of course, the issue of abortion itself is as old as history and goes back in in, in the church all the way back to the church fathers in the fourth century and all the rest of it. That's a different issue. But when it comes to American evangelicalism, I saw the progression. And now something that is going to surprise, I think, many people with an evangelical background is the assumption that somehow abortion was always an issue for evangelicals and a kind of an automatic litmus test, which it has now become for the Republican Party and the evangelicals and the conservative movement. In fact, 
What a lot of folks don't know is, for instance, with Dr. Billy Graham, the evangelist, or Dr. Criswell, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time in the mid-1970s, late 1970s, and also uh, a pastor of First Dallas, uh, First Baptist in Dallas, our argument was not with the secular culture, but when my dad and I and Sierra Coop took out the series as ardent pro-lifers, and by the way, I want to say up front, I've changed my position when it comes to what I believe, but that's a different discussion. Right now, we're talking about the history issues, yeah. but I want to be up front. Um, we had an argument not with the secular world, but with the evangelical leadership, Billy Graham, that, that would be Franklin Graham's dad, Dr. Criswell, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor of the largest church, the, the president of the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary in Dallas, the, the diehard backbone of the evangelical movement totally disapproved of our series. And in, for instance, in the case of Billy Graham, he said, point blank, I'm pro-choice. And I'm pro-choice based on the fact that Jesus uh, cannot be put in a position where I'm preaching a gospel uh, of judgment and telling women what to do. Now, I'm not saying I wow. agree or disagree. I'm telling you what he told us. Dr. Criswell went further and cited Bible verses about the quickening of a baby in a mother's womb at the first breath uh, God breathing the breath of life into the nostril of Adam and so forth. He actually had a theological argument for being pro-choice and had spoken that he agreed with Ronald Reagan legalizing abortion in California and also Rockefeller doing the same in New York. He went another step. The editors of Christianity Day magazine back in those days not only would not review our film series, uh, they wrote articles saying that this was not a, a good issue for evangelicals, that it was a Roman Catholic issue along with a ban on contraceptives, that evangelicals yeah. had a different point of view, and they lumped it right in with contraception and the, and the Roman Catholic view saying, look, this, wasn't, this is not our argument. Now, Dr. Koop had to talk my father, Francis Schaefer, into being part of that series because dad had a similar view. Francis Schaefer, my father, said, this, isn't huh. our, this is not our issue. Why would I make a series, a whole series about this? It's a good example of ju the judiciary taking legislative action that they shouldn't take because it's too sweeping. But why would we get involved in this? So what most people right. don't understand is when we were out on with another series called How Should We Then Live, which was a history of art and culture, my father made bookend ser film series. We did seminars around the country. You know, we had 26,000 people in Dallas. Uh, you know, Roger Staubach, who was the quarterback of, the, of the, the Cowboys at the time, came to the seminar and and opened it. He was a Roman Catholic. We were, you know, had the blessing of the all the evangelical establishment. We showed up three years later with the series on abortion and literally we couldn't fill the front row of the same venues. Huh. Gospel Films and my production company lost about $3 million in the course of six months having bet that we would have the same audience. And it was the, the uh, you know, it seemed at the time, look, this is ridiculous. We're being totally rejected by evangelicals on this. When, when Jerry Falwell was talked into taking a position on abortion by my father, because Jerry Falwell was not pro-life, uh, he was pro-choice, when he was talked into taking a position, and when Dr. Dobson of Focus on the Family was talked into taking a position, which he hadn't been before, I may come across a little bit as a cynic here, but I think it had a lot to do with fundraising ability, and they needed an issue besides whipping the increasingly dead horse of, of, of being down on gay rights, as public opinion was changing on that, and they latched on. But it wasn't with the same vigor with which they had approached other issues before. That gradually happened. So that when you fast forward to the Trump era, when the entire presidency was defined by trying to appoint Supreme Court justices to reverse Roe, if you had told Billy Graham, Dr. Quiswell, Dr. Dobson, and Jerry Falwell Sr. that in 2020, this would be the issue, they would have laughed in your face in 1972 mm. and three, because it was a, a non-issue. So. Just to correct a little bit of the history, it has always been part of the teaching of the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, by name, specifically. When it came to evangelicals, they were divided in exactly the same way the rest of the country was. They were certainly not identified as a pro-life bastion of a particular yeah. point of view. And the idea that it would have been a political litmus test would have been ridiculous to someone like Billy Graham. In fact, that is one of the reasons he, he did not want to get involved. Now, his wife, Ruth, 
got on one of our boards and committees to help out because she she actually was pro-life. Her husband, Billy, was pro-choice. And I don't think a lot of evangelicals want to acknowledge that past because then it sort of brings up the question, well, why have we made this assumption that this is the make or break litmus test issue for everything, uh, right. including including accepting the presidency of someone who in every other way uh, with Donald Trump and his family seems to be the very polar opposite when it comes to the characteristics of what you think of as a of, uh, as a as a moral life. So that's now, a long that's a long answer, but it's one I give in depth because I don't think folks are aware of that history. Yeah, and and honestly, it's a history that I I wasn't aware of, especially kind of growing up as I grew up. I never knew that there was ever a time where Christians were you know, pro-choice as you describe it, it was always, this is how we've always been, who we're always going to be and how we always should be. Well, you but, know, just, I just want to jump in one last thing. When yeah. we were so we were so angry with the editors of Christianity Today magazine for not taking a stand that my production company, Schaefer 5 Productions, actually started a giveaway free newspaper that was distributed about three, 400,000 copies at a time Wow. Uh, through churches and bookstores, taking them on by name, criticizing their editors, doing alternative arguments, saying, look, Christianity Today won't take a stand on this, but we do. And one of the reasons they eventually began to, to bend is they got a lot of flack back from some of their readers who became convinced by the arguments that my dad, C. Everett Coop, and I, and my newspaper, The Christian Activist, were making. So it wasn't just a an issue where, oh, well, you know, they didn't commit it in the beginning. There was a fight over this, and the pro-life position won the day within the evangelical community, but it was about a 10-year period of a knockdown, drag-out fight with a lot of holdouts in the evangelical community who in no way could be described as liberal theologically. I mean, nobody yeah. was more fundamentalist than Dr. Criswell. This, this, was a guy, this was a guy who kicked out half the faculty from half the seminaries in the States of the Southern Baptist Convention on the basis of their not being faithful to the inerrancy of scripture. He actually yeah. went to war with those guys. This is the guy who was one of the pro-life, pro-choice folks. So it isn't like a few liberals, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, the establishment of the fundamentalist evangelical community did not find this a worthy issue to get involved with and fought it for about a 10-year period and then, and then lost. And that's, that's, I think, where my question comes in. Why did they fight it back then? I mean, what, what was the, the, the theological premise? What was the idea? Why was it an issue that, that some of these people who I think most people would be really surprised to hear, even your own father, were pro-choice? Why was it that they were you know, hesitant to fight against it or actually think it wasn't worth fighting against abortion around the time of Roe v. Wade? Two reasons. One, they had always seen the issue of abortion as part and parcel of the contraceptive discussion, uh, and they did not agree with the Roman Catholic position. Evangelical family planning was okay, and the Roman Catholic said it wasn't. They saw it as part of the same discussion. Second, on a practical basis of the witness of Christ, they did not think that that kind of judgmental stand in terms of telling women with a pregnancy that they didn't want to carry to term that somehow the church and Christianity uh, was making a judgment of them and they were going to have to bear a burden that no man was asked to bear. It was very much of a feminist argument. But by the way, the real issue here is that the evangelical community was part of a wider community, did not see itself as so distinctly separate from the rest of the country. And if you go back to the, air, the issue of Roe v. Wade, you'll find that a lot of people, when it came to abortion, not in terms of the technicalities of which trimester is it legal to and all this stuff, but generally, it was sort of the attitude was, this is none of our business. And so the fact is, when it was being legalized in places like New York, the big fight was with Roman Catholic bishops. It wasn't with ordinary Americans or Protestants in general or evangelicals. So you know, you could criticize evangelicals and say they were weak and they were simply reflecting the culture around them and thank God that they woke up. But the fact of the matter is they took no more of a stand on this than the rest of the society did. So they had to be talked into taking a stand. Uh, they were not there already. And traditionally, Protestants had just simply not made this an issue any more than they had made contraception an issue. 
And when did that start to change? When did we actually see, I mean, after you, you created these, uh, these movies to try and kind of make Christians wake up to it, to the idea of abortion being kind of wrong or evil. And when did you actually see the actual shift happen where people like Billy Graham, I mean, maybe even just your own Billy father. Graham never changed. Hey, Billy Graham never changed his mind. He went to his grave pro-choice and his son, Franklin, has done his best to cover that up and not talk about it. But the fact of the matter is none of these guys did change their mind. Uh, Frank, he didn't. Criswell never did. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, came around. The editors of Christianity Today got with the program because they were getting so much heat and people were canceling subscriptions by the thousands. But um, to, to not make too, to find a point of it, our series essentially lit a flame. And then, of course, thousands of other people picked it up. And then it became a major point and a fundraising issue. But the big the big change was this. When Ronald Reagan sat down with people like me and, and Pat Robertson and others and discovered that he could use this issue painlessly, as in no skin off his nose, he wasn't going to do anything about it because he remained pro-choice personally, as his wife Nancy did. He was able, the, the Republican leadership, people like Jack Kemp, my friend, the congressman who then became a vice presidential candidate. I used to stay in Jack's house with him and Joanne. They had a Francis and Edith Schaefer Bible study in their home that we went to. Wow. Yeah. Dole and others. We knew all these people. Hey, my mom, Edith Schaefer, used to stop off and swim in Betty Ford's pool in the White House. My parents stayed in the Lincoln bedroom. They, we, were, we were the evangelical right-wing Republican establishment, you know, before there was such a thing. So from that vantage point, all we had to do is talk to Republican leaders into making this an issue, saying, look, if you do, we can bring you voters because our people, evangelicals, are starting to wake up. And it became a, a, a kind of a, a deal. So how many of the right-wing Republicans or conservative Republicans or evangelical Republicans felt any personal commitment to this? I'm, I don't know. I, I can't judge their hearts. However, practically speaking, when evangelicals discovered this helped them have access to power, because as you know, being a pastor's son and being in the evangelical community, a lot of evangelicals have a sort of an inferiority complex in terms of the culture and a sense of victimhood, like we're being kept out. Our side of the story is never told. Hey, I was on the Today Show with Jane Pauley back in the 80s, arguing that our books weren't being counted by the New York Times as bestsellers, even though we were outselling theirs three to one because they didn't count church bookstores. I knew that whole thing. Well, evangelicals had this kind of sense of being shut out and victimized. That played into it. And so I think it was one of these things where two sides saw a benefit in making this a test issue. Here's the interesting thing. When Roe v. Wade was legalized, to flip the coin here a second, some of the most ardent anti-abortion voices were from the left. Okay. Nate uh, Hentoff, who is the music editor for the Village Voice, the ultra left wing Marxist Village Voice, was a, a passionate speaker for Roe v. Wade being the legalization of murder, which was the way he put it. Huh. Uh, there was as much clear resistance from the left as there was from the right. Okay, that's another thing evangelicals don't know. They think this has always been their turf. It could have broken the other way. If, if Billy Graham and those guys had stayed pro-choice and the left-wing voice hadn't been, uh, hadn't been criticized by the most ardent of the feminist groups, it could easily be that today, along with things like Black Lives Matter, the pro-life view would have been a left-wing view and it would have been the right wing that would have been talking about choice from the point of view of corporate America. And we don't want women saddled with pregnancy because then it makes them less productive. That was the way the right wing saw it. And they flipped only because the Republican Party began to use this as a wedge issue. So two sides. One, evangelicals were not originally pro-life unanimously by any means, nor were their leaders. Secondly, the left was not unanimous. If you go back and look at the critiques of Nat Hentoff and the Village Voice of Abortion, they could have been written yesterday by a charismatic pastor somewhere. Huh. Minus huh. the Bible verse or two, but you understand what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Which, again, to me, as someone in, as someone in my 30s, yeah. um, I've never known anything opposite. And, and the, the history per se, isn't necessarily a 
you know, and, and I want to say this from my vantage point, right? The history itself is not something that I would say is a reason theologically maybe to change your mind. But it is interesting to recognize that this debate, as someone in my 30s, has been much more storied and has much more to it than just this is who we are and this is who we're always going to be. And I think I'm still maybe curious, you know, what was, if you talked about Criswell had a theological underpinning for being pro-choice. I mean, can you recall what that was? And, yeah, and- I mean, he was citing all the verses about quickening and the ones about lesser punishment for people who caused a, mi- a miscarriage and a stillbirth than those who caused murder. There's a lot of Bible verses that, that he can be pulled in on the other side. I'm not saying I believe that one way or the other, but I'm, you asked me about Criswell, not me. Yeah. And I'm telling you that he pulled that stuff out about life starts when God breathes air into your nostrils, quickening of the of the child. These terms that are in the you know King James Bible, the quickening of the of the of the unborn, the the Jewish law about the penalty for causing a miscarriage not being the same as murder, et cetera, et cetera. He trotted these out, but then both he and Billy Graham said, "How are we going to preach the gospel to women?" when they are saddled with unwanted pregnancies and we're coming from a point of view of of preaching the forgiveness and the love of Jesus, and on the other hand, siding with people who want to put them in jail for doing something that we know every single man would do if he got stuck with the same predicament and didn't want the Uh, child. They They felt that it was gross hypocrisy, and I wouldn't call them feminists, but they certainly had heard that argument and it jived with their experience of the way women were being treated within their own community. Have to remember, Billy Graham desegregated his his outreach crusades in 1952, when most white Christians weren't even paying attention to race. I don't think evangelicals know the history of uh, how many people like Billy Graham there were who were front and center when it came to social issues of being out of step with what you would call right-wing, southern-tinged Christianity, and its assumptions about all sorts of stuff. And one of them was women. You know, Billy Graham did not believe that women had to be subservient to men. He did not buy the harsher interpretation, nor did Criswell. So I would just say fundamentalism has changed in a lot of ways by becoming so hard and politicized and absolutist. And again, the temper of the times were very different. This was a period when Republicans were not flirting with all sorts of conspiracy theories that, uh, you know, demonize all Democrats and left-wing people um, or calling anybody who had a more progressive view unchristian or unsafe. These were different times. I'm old enough to remember them. And, and here's the weird thing. I was on the other side. I was, excuse the language, but I was the hard ass telling them that they weren't real Christians because they didn't agree with me. So my journey has taken me from being an instigator on the far right that basically got people like Ralph Reed into politics in the beginning, okay? And then all the way through to taking a position in a different way. But having been, as it were, you know, uh, in, in, as it were back in the day, on the uh, not just on the other side, but one of the instigators of the harshness, encouraging my dad, for instance, to write a Christian manifesto in which he called very much like a militia, man, uh, NRA kind of thing for the overthrow of the U.S. government if we couldn't change the abortion laws. You know, we were the hard right. Francis Schaeffer in the last years of his life and me, we were the instigators of a position that I now look back on with a certain amount of regret and shame, because I think that what we did is actually pollute the Christian witness with a hard edge that is now turning off so many people since evangelicals white evangelical Christians have become so identified with the party of Donald Trump. In in a sense, that's all they're going to be known for now. So really, I think Billy Graham was proved right. I'm not talking about abortion, but about making politics and winning power the heart of the evangelical witness. Since when has that ever been the church's witness in history? It's not just evangelical history. It's the whole history of the church back to Jesus and the book of Acts. So if that's our shtick, then we're no longer a church and we're certainly not a witness for Christ. What we are is a hard-ass political movement 
that gives no quarter, shows no mercy, and always reads the worst interpretation of anybody who disagrees with us. If that's what you want, have at it. You're welcome to that. But believe me, Billy Graham will be remembered as having been wise in saying, you go this path, and no one is going to want any part of you. And that's exactly what he said. He said, this is too harsh, and I will not be able to preach the gospel if I take a stand on this issue that's that and cut and dry. He was much more ambivalent about it. Right. Now, if if you don't mind, and you can definitely tell me no, but how did your own story kind of shift? In what way did you, because I'm assuming in creating these documentaries and creating these, you know, uh, magazines against Christianity today, that you really actually held to that belief um, at that time, the, the, the more anti-abortion stance. Sure, How did absolutely. your own story change? Well, a couple things. First of all, as you know, because you come from a pastor's family and now you're, you're stuck in the theological profession too. I'm smiling when I say that, by the way. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're, you're sort of a crazy one, Aaron, getting, you know, ma- master's degree after master's degree. Now you want to do a PhD. When is enough enough? You know, I, I just want to remind you, that, you know, have babies, enjoy your life, be a father, <laughs> forget all this other crap. But um, that said, listen, uh, you know, part of it is that I was a nepotistic sidekick to my father. You know, one thing evangelicals don't admit very freely is the, the level of nepotism in all these big time ministries. You know, the God business runs very much like the Trump clan runs. Everybody's mm-hmm. involved. Everybody's hands in the cookie jar. If you're not getting a salary, then you've got a, a ministry vacation home. Uh, if you're you know, if you don't want to buy a jet, then the ministry buys you one and so forth and so on. All the big evangelical ministries, you know, why is everybody's wife and cousin and brother and sister and in-law and kids on the payroll? You know, how on earth did Pat Robertson parlay a little TV, a little UHF TV station that nobody watched into a billion dollar empire that owns hotels, runs a university where his net worth is now over a billion? I mean, what has this got to do with ministry? It's one question. So the first thing is, without excuse, I was just a greedy young guy with a wife who'd gotten pregnant when I was a teen, another one on the way, and Billy Zioli of Gospel Films came along and said, you know, we'll finance a series, and that was how should we then live. You can be the producer if you can talk your dad into making it. And then the second chance to make a series came along with whatever happened to the human race when C. Everett Koop came to me and said, let's do another one on abortion. It's time we wake up evangelicals on this issue. I wanted the paycheck. That's part of it. The other part is, is that having had a teen pregnancy and who turned into my beloved daughter, Jessica, who's now 50 years old with two kids of her own, I had seen how if we dump every unborn child we don't want, what a ruinous thing this would be on a personal level. I loved that little girl and I had two more kids after that and I wouldn't have changed anything. Even even the very difficult times as a, as a broke teen husband, father, if you want to call a teenager, uh, you know, rotten guy with the temper and all the rest, a quote unquote father. I had a long learning curve on that. So the personal side of me was very committed to giving life a chance. And by the way, still is in terms of personal commitment to where I think the best of life is lived. But that's very different than saying, I think people belong in jail who disagree with me, or that they should never be elected no matter how good they are on other issues, or that we should elect somebody like a Donald Trump, no matter what we think of him personally, as long as he'll appoint uh, an anti-abortion judge. That's where I get off the boat. So my, my sympathies as a father and grandfather are entirely on the side of the beauty of life lived in a family. My my feeling as someone who lives in a state in which there are plenty of people with very different views of mine is that we're not a theocracy. I don't want to live in Saudi Arabia where people who disagree with the religion of the Wahhabist Islamic cult get a public flogging. I don't want to live in Iran where the mullahs are in charge. And I want the pastors and the evangelicals and the Roman Catholic bishops to stay out of American politics and to let us have a constitutional form of government that is not informed by theocracy. So that's a different sort of position, but it's one of a 68-year-old guy who's done a bunch of living and a bunch of reading and a bunch of experiencing as opposed to a hot shot 17, 18, 19, 20, 22-year-old 
out there with his dad as his nepotistic sidekick, basically wet behind the ears, just spouting off stuff that other people have put together and repackaging it and, uh, you know, being happy that this buys him a ride on a private jet once in a while. That's the truth of it. Now, yeah. the, jur- the journey after that out of evangelicalism wasn't a journey away from pro-life positions, but I've kept the rest. I totally bailed so that people who read my Calvin Becker trilogy of novels, uh, Portofino, Saving Grandma, and Zermatt, which came out a long time ago now in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, will know that my view of, for instance, the life of the missionary kid growing up in an evangelical family where they're being sort of conditioned in ways that actually are very funny because those are works of humor, or people who read Crazy for God and see the journey out will understand that it was the sheer ugliness of the politicizing of Christianity mm. and the harshness that went with it that, that yeah. I, I bail. Now, I'd never made more money than I made in those days. We had more money on the book table some nights than I make in a year on one night. There, you know, there's there's good money in them that are God. Yeah. And yeah. As, a, as a freelance writer, you know, I can't even dream of that kind of income. But that said, I'm a better husband because I'm not ashamed of the harsh company I'm keeping. I'm not someone who looks at every gay person I meet and thinks they're going to burn in hell. Uh, I'm not somebody who, who thinks that uh, the sun rises and sets on getting a Supreme Court justice, no matter what it costs the cause of Christ because of who we're in bed with and what the quest for power looks like to the rest of the world. That's where I've changed. Yeah. And, you know, while we can disagree, you and I, what I think is something really important in what you just said, um, and maybe you can expound on that some, is the the sense that the way in which we have become politicized or the way in which we have, you know, your own story, you saw the inner workings of kind of the politicization and the all the crap that went with it that turns you off. How much more so are we hurting Christian witness within the U.S. by continuing to engage in that kind of reality? Yeah, I mean, it's twofold. Back in my day, okay, the idea that anyone like Donald Trump ever could have been elected as president by 82% or whatever it was of white evangelicals would have been laughable. So that when you just simply go through his personal life and all the rest of it, the sort of issues that Jerry Falwell Sr. was bringing up in the moral majority, they would have had nothing to do with him. They would have said anybody but this guy. So that's point one, and that's indisputable. Not only was yeah. I there, but I knew these people. You never would have talked any of the leadership into backing him at that point. That's how far the Roe v. Wade decision and the issue of abortion had pushed the evangelicals toward wanting any solution, uh, even, even in the package of Donald Trump, to change it. The second thing is, is that when you look at the reputation of white evangelical Christianity now, that is already losing a generation and is continuing in in terms of numbers statistically in this country, the nuns, not people in cloisters, but right, right. N-O-N-E, the people who aren't any religion and so forth. That's the fastest growing segment of the American population when it comes to questionnaires on what religion you are. So again, beyond dispute is the fact that a, a new generation of Americans is being lost. If anybody thinks that pictures of white militiamen with Make America Great Again hats waving guns in front of state houses to take down a, gov- a duly elected Democratic governor who's been demonized uh, is the way to to preach God's love of people, you know, be my guest. And that's the image that is now sticking. I'm not saying that's entirely fair or that it applies to every right. individual, but that is the image, the image right now. And no, it is not fake news by an anti-Christian media. This is actual news. It actually happens. And the kind of behavior we've seen in the crowds uh, toward the media, toward the free press, the fact that no one had brought up uh, the fact that Donald Trump had been backed by Vladimir Putin, who is, if nothing else, a a prime hater of the United States of America. This is not going to be forgotten. It will not be wiped out. There is no going back from this. So I'd say that the church in the U.S. now, reputation-wise, is very much in the same place that in 1945 the German church was as it tried to regain some sort of credibility, having not taken a stand on a slow slide through the late 20s and 30s and into the 40s uh, toward fascism in Germany. Now, we didn't get there. But the idea that the role of the church is to seek 
temporal, worldly power at any cost, making any compromise with the absolutes of scripture to get there is a mistake on just a historic level of what happened. It's not, a, it's not an accident that Germany is one of the most secularized countries on earth now. It's not an accident that the credibility of the Roman Catholic Church in Italy went totally down the drain and churches are empty after the Mussolini era in which the leadership of Catholicism embraced Mussolini as someone who would stand against atheism and secularism. So where, where this has been tried, where power has been grabbed by believing Christians, professing Christ in the name of doing good and defending themselves politically against people who question them or mock them, if you want to yeah. look at it that way, it hasn't worked out very well and it's not going to work out in the States. So my, my view is that me getting off the boat back in the late 1980s, after my dad died in 84, I just looked forward and I thought to myself, two things. The big time leaders that I know personally are crooks. They are stealing. They are raising money and spending it on themselves and their families. There's no other way to slice this. Hmm. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering if my parents were stupid for being impoverished missionaries living in Switzerland before my dad's books got famous who believed that God sent what you needed, but you did not take more. My dad didn't even have a secretary. He worked on the side of his bed in an old rocking chair on a tea tray. Uh, he didn't hmm. even have a desk. He, he did not own a car. We ate meat maybe once a week because the budget was so low in the, in the ministry of Labrie. That's, my, that's what I thought missionary and, and evangelism was about. There was sacrifice. Yeah. There was faith. There was prayer. You know, the first time I walked into the 700 Club with Pat Robertson and realized that, you know, we're, we're, it's limos and private jets from here on down. Uh, the first time that I heard the discussions with people uh, like Dr. Dobson and his family, all of which who were hooked into the ministry on how they could hire this cousin or hire this person or, or make up a job for aunt so-and-so, I wasn't going to do this anymore. Uh, and so that was one thing. The second thing is, is the ugliness of the harshness on one hand, and on the other hand, wanting to be a writer who has some talent as a writer and therefore wanted to be an artist in a legitimate sense of the word. These things didn't go together. So yeah. it wasn't so much a big spiritual step as, as a very basic aesthetic decision. Who wants to live a whole life surrounded by ugliness? And I didn't. And the evangelical community has become incredibly ugly. And uh, it wasn't always that way. So, it's, so it's, you know, as we look back on our history, Black Lives Matter exists because of the evangelical witness against slavery. That's what evangelicals used to be known for, standing yeah. up for, for civil rights. Our history has changed now. Now we're known for power grabs and, and uh, demonizing others, going along with things like the QAnon conspiracy, utter BS, just complete nonsense because it somehow feeds our view of, of self-justification, where we'd rather believe that than, say, the science of climate change or what the sober editors of the Washington Post are writing in terms of the track record of a politician. All these other things, we're, we're choosing this alternative path. It's anti-science. It's anti-fact. And in the fundamental sense, it's even in the end going to become anti-democracy because the country itself demographically, yeah. intellectually, spiritually is moving the other way. Now, there's a good reason to be a persecuted minority if you're in the Roman Empire. But if the people who are out there saying Black Lives Matter are, are, are up against evangelicals who essentially are their opponents, if the women who are looking for rights in a misogynistic culture that is not fair to women, that has just had a presidency go on now since 2016 of a man who molested women and still was elected by Christians, what sort of a witness is this? Yeah. And that is that is the the hard thing, especially for a lot of, you know, again, speaking from my own experience, from millennials who grew up in a church that demanded such morality, especially if you come from holiness traditions like Pentecostalism, that, you know, language mattered, actions mattered, thoughts mattered, the treatment of other people mattered. And all of a sudden now it doesn't matter. Hey, at you know, least, at least for I, that guy. Yeah, exactly. And not just that guy. It doesn't matter when it comes to who our, our bedfellows are. You know, one of my father's books, Francis Schaeffer, this paragon of evangelical right wing Christianity in the 1970s, he wrote a book called Pollution and the Death of Man, calling Christians to be the, among the first to take a strong stand on the environment. 
Now, the environmental stand evangelicals take is crafted by the big oil business, the coal business, and the rest of right-wing America uh, when it comes to corporate interests. How did that happen? What Mm. happened to the prophetic environmental witness of Christians saying, look, God created this good earth. We're supposed to be good stewards of it. Where did that go? Now you hear all this nonsense of, well, Jesus is coming back anyway soon. So what's it matter? You know, the ocean's rising. Anyway, all those East Coast liberal elites, you know, that'll be good. Their cities are underwater. I mean, what is this? And so when you hear stuff like that and, and and, and you start saying, what do these people have a reputation for? They have a reputation for a merciless pursuit of their own agenda at any cost. They are totally in bed with corporate America that doesn't give a crap about your family, by the way, and wants to make sure that you all you do is work for them. You don't have time to be a mother or a father or a grandfather. They've eliminated all this. We don't give any family leave time. Women who get jobs and then stop to have babies and stay home with their children and be good mothers have trouble when they come back to the workplace. Is this what evangelicalism has become? The the sort of lick spittle echo chamber of corporate America? Where's where's the gospel in all this stuff? Why aren't we telling people that success should be measured in the love that you have in your life, the personal relationship with your spouse, the quality of your fatherhood, whether fathers are willing to take time to be with their kids and not pursue career success? Why are we moving so much? How come we break up families and move across the country for nothing better than a job that pays better? Why don't you stay where you are so you can build a community? Why aren't we talking about this stuff? Because the evangelical community has bought into the corporate vision of America, which is merciless. And now we are merciless. So it isn't just this pro-life thing. And do you have a different view? You know, I've washed my hands of this community when it comes to not individual relationships, but the idea that somehow we are on the right side. And I would say a line has been crossed and evangelicalism is now identified with such a negative force and such a dark spirit that just in the area of spiritual warfare, I would say that the old time evangelical Christians like my father or Billy Graham or Dr. Criswell would come back and it would be a tough choice for them whose side they would be on because they would still hear something in the words of Ralph Reed Franklin Graham and these others to remind them of where they stood. But when they saw what the whole package entailed, they would be saying, wait a minute, there's nothing Christian about any of this. This is corporate America. And this is big, big business. And this is tax cuts for billionaires. What's this got to do with Jesus? And, and, and until evangelicals face this, their reputation is such mud now that I think they are, we, those of us who are still trying to live lives of faith, have got a call for something else now which is repentance. And repentance means change. We can't keep going. What's the next? You know, one of the things I've learned as a 68-year-old with my own life history and my choices and the mistakes I've made and my children and my grandchildren is this. And that is when you're in the middle of something, whatever it is, politics or having a crush on somebody you're not married to, whatever it may be, ask yourself this. If I go down this path, what is the next chapter? So if, yeah. we, if we follow Donald Trump down the rabbit hole and, and all of a sudden have redefined the entire movement based on people at rallies screaming at members of the media and uh, threatening to beat people up and the public image of tear gas and pepper spray and all the rest of it, what's the next chapter? So, so when I look at my journey where we started out talking about crisis pregnancy centers and helping pregnant mothers and trying to change individual lives and redeem them and individual children and all the rest of it to this hard-ass political movement led by greedy Wall Street people who have taken advantage of the evangelicals in trying to eliminate environmentalism and all the rest of it. I just ask, how do you see the next chapter? What would be the next step after this? And if, yeah. it's, not, and if it's not repentance, then how much further down the path for the pursuit of power are you willing to go? How much more are you willing to lose, not of your reputation, but the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the witness of the love and the power of the gospel on earth? How yeah. much more of that can be traded before none of this is worth anything? And and basically, we're in the position of the people of Israel who go so far away that they're just put into captivity. They're just eliminated for 40, 50, 400 years at a time. As, as a kind of a, 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 an action by God within the biblical structure 
of getting them back on track again? What is it going to take yeah. to bring evangelicals back to the fact that this is not the gospel? The Republican Party is not the gospel. And and that's a good question. And one that I think at this point, we're going to leave our listeners to chew on. You know, what is it going to take to kind of re-envision the work of Jesus within you know, particularly here in the U.S., um, and and there's struggles in other places in the world. But you know, both of us are Americans. We're in the U.S., so we can speak to our own situations, right? Um, but it's been a wonderful talking to you, hearing this history, uh, and 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 hearing the way that you're processing things and how things have changed uh, for you. That I think is going to be really helpful for a lot of people to chew on and to think through as it relates to not just the topic of abortion, but also just the state of Christianity in America. Before we go, though, um, if you wouldn't mind telling everyone how they can connect with you, where they can buy your books or how they can stay connected with the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, like uh, everybody else and their cousin, I've got a Facebook site. So you just look for Frank Schaefer on Facebook. I've got a Twitter site. My books are all on Amazon under Frank Schaefer. If you're from an evangelical background, I would recommend that you read my novel, Portofino, and laugh along with me at a coming-of-age story told from the point of view of a pastor's son and some of the foibles. It's gentle. It's not a mockery of Christianity. You'll like it no matter where you come from, I think. Uh, And then on the other hand, if you want to know more about my journey out of the evangelical environment and and what prompted that and how, how I ended up Crazy for God, my memoir would be the one. And then, you know, if if anybody still wants to know anything about where Frank Schaefer wound up in terms of faith and, and why I pray or or don't pray or however that all came to came about, then this little book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, about the paradox of having faith while also being someone who questions uh, might interest you. And those are available on Amazon. Perfect. Well, I would encourage everyone to go uh, check out those books. Uh, one, two, three. How, you have so many, and I know they're good. Um, but Frank, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me today and to give us that story. Well, Aaron, I thank you. And after these turbulent years, I would just say this to anybody who's listening, you included Aaron, and that is whichever side we come down on the issues and however we vote, the, the fundamental issue is, who are we as a human being? What is your character? And, and does that character radiate the kind of love and forgiveness for the individuals around us that we disagree with? And guess what? Mea culpa. I look at a lot of my posts that have been completely caught up in the political moment, uh, and I realize that I have very badly let myself and what I think is most true down in terms of these political pursuits. And so I by no means solved the equation here. I'm just saying we've all got to do better. Amen. I'm right there with you. Um, Frank, thanks again for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.